think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Well, this episode 116 of the boys in short pants, the 117th episode of Rock Carbono. I'm Nathan Rainbow. Uh, and yeah, we, we had a federal election, uh, though if you were looking for some sort of sign of that, uh, you may not find it, because uh, it turns out that things did not actually change very much. Uh, so my, my thoughts and prayers go out to the people who just worked uh, <laughs> about 45, 18-hour days only to come up with basically the exact same result. That cannot feel good, so uh, you have my sympathies. Yeah, the... Oof, I'm trying to remember what the New York Times called uh, said we were calling it a election election to nowhere. Yeah, that was me. Uh, yeah. I said that. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, the, yeah. the the infamous election to nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I was just yeah, you, know, you know, after C Day, you know, the last thing we needed was an election to nowhere, which has been a rather, I guess, contentious election in the aftermath. With you know, in some ways, uh, among the funnier potential results. Um. The liberals claiming great victory. Um, the other party is in minor shambles as they try and sort out their next steps. Um, but depending on who you are, you can read uh, you can read really whatever you want into this. And I think we're going to go through a little bit of that. Sure. So high level, obviously, the liberals uh, got a, a the same plurality that they did last time, <laughs> give or take. Uh, the conservatives got the same amount of seats give or take, that they did last time. Uh, the NDP got the same amount of seats, give or take, that they did last time. And the Bloc Québécois got about the same number of seats, give or take, that they did last time. With the Greens coming in at about the same number of seats, <laughs> give or take. With so, some elections, yeah. or some writings outstanding, uh, still pending uh, counts yes, and recounts. 13, but... I believe, are at least not updated by the, the hard workers over at CBC uh, and their election tracker. I don't know if other people are more on the ball. Uh, but I mean, overall, um, let's just start the obvious place in terms of liberal cabinet. The liberal cabinet fared fairly well. Yes, three defeats uh, with uh, Bernadette Jordan, of a, Mary Monsef, and Deb Schulte getting uh, owned. Of about 90 cabinet ministers, is that the size of... <laughs> it seems to be where we're getting these days. <laughs> no, the I, I mean, conservatives folks. are guilty of having large cabinets as well. Um, yes, they grow over time. But it seems like our, at least two of our ministers of state... Oh, wait, I don't mean ministers of state. They, they don't exist anymore. Um, but three female cabinet ministers got turfed. Um, Much to a chance to like. Yeah, a... Yes, that's that's exactly my agenda. Um, <laughs> Deb Schult, Schulte or Schultz? What's... I, I could, it's Schultz, like with an E, but I don't know if that's Schulte or what. Okay. But, I mean, it goes to kind of show how significant she was to the truth. Minister of Seniors. Um, Minister do we know where her riding was? Ontario somewhere, I imagine? King Vaughn. King Vaughn. King Vaughn, a GTA riding. And then Mary Monsef, um, who uh, is a notable departure... Um, in Peterborough, as well as Bernadette Jordan, um, who is Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, of course, the, the moderate livelihood yes. fishery having been a, a contentious and at times violent issue on Canada's east coast um, in yes, recent weeks. Yes, the, the weeks. shore of Nova Scotia, especially. For months, so, rather. Uh, yes. Um, so, overall, I would say the, the Trudeau cabinet fared pretty well. Um in terms of immediate next steps, I would expect to see Trudeau name a cabinet in the coming two to three weeks. 
Um, they are often not the fastest moving people on Earth, as we learned in 2019. Um, so pending that, what I would hope to see from a new cabinet would be a pretty significant shuffle. A lot of folks, uh, both shuffle and some removals from cabinet, a lot of folks have skated by for about six years doing incredibly middling or mediocre jobs. And it is really about time for the Trudeau government to realize that and start, you know, uh, putting folks on the chopping block. Uh, first among them being Harjit Sajjan, who probably should not be in cabinet again, um, but certainly should not be at national defense as, as fresh blood is certainly needed there. So the, the sort of premise of this is that the Trudeau government would feel somehow chastened or uh, a, a whiff of humility from a status quo election result after them sending big checks to like about a fifth of the country over the last year uh, and managing their way through a global pandemic and coming up with the exact same result. Um, you would think that that would perhaps inspire some humility. I haven't been seeing it <laughs> so far. Uh, so I put me down as skeptical that there's going to be any kind of big reshuffle. Uh, I think it will probably be, I think it will look pretty similar to the last couple. There's a, to, to use stupid Facebook things. Um, the definition of insanity is, you know, doing the same thing again and again and expecting the same result. And Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau is twisted and and a twisted psychopath like the Joker. And so, uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of where we are, where if like, if he, if the liberal government continues with basically the same cast of characters doing the exact same thing, they're winning. What do they have to complain about? Like, I mean, they're, they're not going to win. Wrong, they're not going to win bigger. Um, well, <laughs> speaking of, I mean, they feel they don't need to, uh, as uh, Jerry Butts was pointing out on Twitter. So, uh, not not entirely the point he was making there, but we we can come back no, to I that. Know. We can come back to that. We later. will. Um, we will come back to that. Right? So that's sort of... Um, Unless we don't. The, the cabinet shuffle is sort of the first thing on the horizon. Um, often paired with that, you'll find mandate letters, um, which will basically be the first um, hint at which uh, platform um, pieces are not, in fact, priorities after all. And with platforms being pretty extensive, um, it's not uncommon for things to get dropped. I don't believe we're... We're sitting on camping, camping vouchers anymore. I feel like the uh, the 2019 mandate for camping vouchers sort of fell off the radar somewhere along the way. Um, the parliament will have to resume, usually uh, with the October fixed election dates, parliament resumes sort of mid-December so for sort of a cursory week around the speech from the throne and then gets put on hold. We have a little more time, considering we had a September, a sort of a mid-September election, yeah, so there might be... Last time it was a month later at this point, so... Yeah, so there might be sort of a month of Parliament, um, and the Liberals will certainly Yeah, well, I'm some... sure the Liberals are... I'm sure they're very keen to get back to Parliament, notably one of their favorite things to do. <laughs> well, at least they have pre-baked bills. Um, C-10 being at the front of the agenda, if they choose to reopen that fight... Um, that being, of course, the uh, uh, the heritage bill that we covered earlier this year. Yeah, the Gil what they called it. Gilbo's bill um, about the yes. internet. Make, making um, the web giants pay, etc. Yes. Uh, although, notably, it will no longer be called C10. Um, as well as the, you know, the pieces of legislation that 
uh, were very near passing at the end of the 43rd Parliament, uh, the conversion therapy like maybe bill we get like a, them. Yeah, or like a pandemic election bill or something like that. Yeah, I, I suspect that one might get put <laughs> on the back burner for the next little while. Um, yeah. yeah, and then, of course, they can have something new to complain about in 18 months when they pull, they pull the trigger on another election. Who would dare... Who would dare call an election without passing the election pandemic uh, measures bill? The, My God, the height—the height of irresponsibility. Yes, so, of course. Um, yes. And yet, we're not making fun of anyone in particular. Here. And yet, here we are. Um, so that's sort of the immediate term. Uh, dig, like scratching the surface a little bit, the the first question for a lot of people in Ottawa is uh, related to the caretaker convention, or the caretaker convention. Of course, is the uh, the convention that dictates that most work inside of Ottawa um, grinds to a halt. That's not how it's written on paper, but that's uh, what it is in practice. Um, that the government defer making important and consequential decisions um, while there is no parliament and during the writs of election. That is supposed to, uh, you know, as a convention, there is sort of jurisprudence around these things. Um, if you listen to the academics, they will say that should be lifted now. Um, the caretaker ceases to take effect when there's sort of a clear election result. Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is going to be a liberal government. Um, I don't know that there's, you know, it could technically, they could fail a confidence vote and there could be a coalition of all the other parties, but like, no, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, caretaker should cease to be a factor. And yet, we have seen recently both the federal and provincial governments um, loathe to tell their folks that caretaker is lifted um, in advance of uh, a cabinet being named. And in practice, caretaker is becoming something um, where uh, it continues to take effect uh, for the most part until a new cabinet is named as sort of the, the lame duck ministers uh, are not particularly eager to do things. However, uh, to give you an example of sort of an urgent and pressing manner, Alberta has uh, requested assistance from, uh, I believe the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, uh, in their COVID response. So there's an example of something, uh, you know, maybe that could have happened during caretaker because there are sort of uh, workarounds emergency, in caretaker yeah. around emergency provisions. I suspect but nonetheless, there's a didn't happen. <laughs> nonetheless, caretaker should be lifted and, you know, action yes. should be able to be taken on those files without um, worrying about caretaker at all. Although I suspect that's not the case. And uh, folks in Ottawa will continue to pretend that caretaker is in place, as will the civil service, um, because it can be very convenient for them to hide behind the veil of caretaker yes on a, a score of fronts including like you know transparency accountability stuff as well as just you know wanting political direction on things an, an actual anecdote i heard from uh, from a friend that i think is is an interesting one about and uh, forgive me for going on this tangent a little bit but i think it i think this organizational culture speaks to that is that a lot of you know the Harper government governed for ten years? That that's a fairly long time. That's that's the time it takes for someone to come into the public service and get to a sort of like middle management position, give or take. Um, and during the Harper government, what I was told is that there was an emphasis on very hands-on management in terms of prior, directing priorities and and you know managing files within a department, and that the folks who came up during that government did not get much of a 
did not get much experience in sort of stick handling files through various processes in a sort of management way. Um, now we have a government that is much more deferential to the public service, but you have a public service that is much less able to function independently uh, than perhaps it used to be in past generations. Um, so you have a bit of a gap there where things don't seem to be happening, um, especially when in an explicit time where the government is left to its own devices, uh, like caretaker, there is a sort of uh, sudden freeze that happens because no one is very clear on what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, so perhaps that, that was an interesting insight that I have uh, thought about since. So I, I would challenge that a little bit um, insofar as, you know, it's been six years under the liberal government um, where one of the first pieces I read after the 15, uh, 2015 election was an anecdote about, you know, political staff pulling on strings and found that nothing was attached to them anymore um, within mm -hmm. the civil service. And for instance, um, on parliamentary affairs, to, to pick an example, uh, conservative staff were much more likely to write speeches um, yes. from uh, start to finish, at least in our office, um, because we did not like the speeches that were written by the civil service that you provide to um, parliamentarians. Mm -hmm. That type of capacity, I think, atrophied, and there was certainly some atrophy. I would expect that there is a pretty robust uh, response and ability that has regrown within the civil service. Although I think what remains, and I, I don't attribute as much to the Harper government as just um, the organizational culture of the government of Canada, is just risk aversion um, is sure, baked yeah. in throughout the entire system to such a degree um, as if you give a department the option to defer publishing a report, even if it's like uh, a report on wastewater management, they will say, aha, it's caretaker, this is too risky. Um, we need our, our political overlords to sign off on the wastewater management report before we publish it. Let's just let's just sit on it for a month. We, we have no pressing. Sure. Uh, need to, and that, and that can be frustrating for, for stakeholders, for media, for whoever else who feel like the government or the civil service should be um, continuing on with more than they in fact are, um, where they tend to put a lot of things on hold out of sort of undue um, undue precaution. And of course it varies department to department as these things are subject to the interpretation of the individuals. Um, Yes, uh, we could probably talk about this for another 20 minutes, but in the interest of everyone's sanity, I, I propose that we, we perhaps turn to back to the election. Uh, yeah, the uh, election. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I want to talk about, I, I mean, neither of us have, you know, a great insight into the mind of the lib. It's a, sort of a mysterious land for us. So people speculating about Trudeau's leadership. My view is he will go or he won't. And that seems to be largely up to him because the party seems to be very much largely in his and his inner circle's hands. He won't. Um, it, my sense is that he, he likely won't. But, you know, he will or he won't. We don't really have a whole lot to say about that because we don't have a lot of insight into liberal land. Um, so if any liberals want to drop us any hot gossip, happy to hear it. Uh, but we won't spend a whole lot of time speculating about whether that will happen or not. Fundamentally, uh, certainly... this is Fundamentally, this is the type of thing that, like, three people know and they tend not to be loose-lipped about it. Like, no, because they, they are Justin Trudeau and, like, two other people. Yeah. and One of whom is Kate. You know, if, if the special assistant uh, for stakeholder relations in ex-minister's office has, has the hot 
uh, gossip on this, it is uh, it is probably incorrect. So we're unfair. Hey, he, maybe he was standing behind uh, Trudeau in line at Kettleman's waiting to get a bagel. Certainly a possibility. You never know. Um, but yeah, all that to say that we won't spend a whole time dwelling on that. Uh, I mean, obviously the 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 whole gamble here was to get a, a big stonk in majority to have the annoying parts of Parliament go away. That did not happen. So in that sense, that is a disappointing result for them. But uh, they seem to be very happy to put up the big old mission accomplished banner regardless. And nor, nor do I blame them. You don't really want to be out there saying, hey, yeah, we really got our asses kicked out there. Uh, that was embarrassing. Uh, so, you know, fair enough. Uh, that takes us to the conservatives. And uh, Tiana, I will sort of let you tee off on, on your big thoughts on, you know, I think that there are some, the, the, the sound of the knife sharpening guy's truck is, is around the around the corner. Uh, people are, are rushing with their knives out there to get them sharpened. So what's going on there? Ottawa people may understand that reference. Um, so listen, let's talk about, uh, you know, a, as you said, the election result is largely the same. What was the promise and the pitch of Aaron O'Toole? Um, if you, like, ignore maybe what it explicitly was during leadership, which was true blue conservative... <laughs> <laughs> if you ignore and, all the stuff I said, <laughs> and you shook that to quote the the Romney folks a little bit, you you shook that as etch a sketch, and you uh, you took it all in. It was basically a someone who was going to pivot to the center on some issues, um, in order to largely appeal to the GTA. Um, the, when you look at the GTA riding maps today. Um, the conservatives lost seats. You know, there's there's no two well, ways about it. Yeah. Um, you know, folks like Leona Alislev find themselves out of work. Uh, so it is difficult to look at that result. Uh, and this this is certainly the view of many. Um, to look at that re- result and call it mission accomplished. Uh, some, uh, Jenny Byrne uh, in this camp, um, have said that polls showed us up a few weeks ago this was winnable therefore this is a great and tragic loss um that exceeds the loss of 2019 and and the the contrast against andrew Shear seems to be a common one um in terms of appraising aaron o'toole the question in my mind is how much of an apples to apples comparison can you make here based on really two factors one Andrew Scheer was still fighting uh, for his leadership and may still be leader to this day. Who knows? It's sort of a counterfactual that we can't uh, can't know for sure. If the paying for kids education uh, out of the conservative fund stuff hadn't happened, that was really the final nail. Um, there is a world in which that didn't happen. Um, and uh, Andrew Scheer ran this race. The other part of it, is the environmental question. Was the environment in 2019 uh, very, you know, more forgiving or less forgiving than the 20, uh, what are we, 2021 election? Yes, and by this you mean the political environment and not climate. (laughs) Yes, correct. Yes, just to be clear for listeners. (laughs) Um, In my books, 2019 was a easier layup than 2020 and, or 2021, and I'll I'll quickly make the case, uh, you know, in both directions. 2019, you had blackface, SNC, uh, a lot of scandals that were very, very fresh. Um, the prime minister was a little more embattled. Um, 
and the sheer campaign sort of fell apart off the bat you know almost pre-writ on what should have been uh questions they were prepared for most notably abortion um that ended... well, and the american citizenship thing which was yeah I there was think a... was a big deal but seemed to a lot of people seem to think american it was, uh american citizenship credentials past comments those all seem to derail really effectively derail the campaign um, at yeah. the end the result uh in that one was a popular vote share and around 120 seats or uh was the plurality of the popular vote um and around 120 seats um not enough to take the liberals in this election we have a conservative leader um who came to power during covid during basically a, a crisis of untold proportion a crisis that lends itself towards arguments for greater um, government intervention. So in that sense, they are necessarily, um, you know, lend themselves for people looking towards uh, more government intervention and more progressive parties as a result. Having a conservative message, as uh, Jason Kenney is learning, is a, is a, and running a conservative government during a global pandemic is a, fairly challenging as it turns out as you're split between uh folks in your base um who want to maximize freedom um their version of freedom at least um and you know economic questions business folks etc and you have a government who has spent uh hundreds of millions uh sorry not hundreds of millions off by a few orders of magnitudes hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, direct financial support for businesses, for people, for individuals, and should be ri uh, riding a fairly high tide of goodwill. Most of the governments of Canada who um, uh, initiated elections during this period were handsomely rewarded for it, ignoring uh, Nova Scotia. But for the <laughs> most part, um, the trend has been very positive towards incumbents. And I think broadly the Canadian public feels like um, the Liberal government did a fairly good job of managing it, um, the objections of these podcasters aside. Yes. So you take those two things, you can weigh them, we can have that conversation in length, at length, but those two elements, the environmental one, um, and remind me what the first one I said was, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, uh, whatever we said earlier. Yes, there, that was exactly that. <laughs> Those are what make this, you know, a difficult calculus for people in either direction. You can really make whatever argument you want here. Uh, I am of the view on the balance of everything that Aaron O'Toole um, did a pretty good job. Um, certainly, the campaign lost uh, momentum. The missteps that really derailed him, uh, to use an example, firearms, were things that had happened during leadership and were things that I suspect at the time were seen as a necessary component of leadership. Um, you know, the NFA is a known quantity. Uh, Peter McKay once upon a time got trouble for wearing an, an, uh, an NFA shirt uh, or, or got tricked into wearing an, an NFA shirt. So I guess he mm -hmm. knew better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to say whether or not this was winnable for Aaron, uh, despite the, the blip in polling sort of partway through. 
Yes, I mean, it's worth saying that the expectation at the outset of this campaign is... A, it's all. It's funny, because it's almost worse for O'Toole that he had a good campaign, because <laughs> the expectations were so low going into this. Like, everyone assumed that the Liberals would just roll to a majority easily, and then that didn't happen, and now everyone's mad. And, like, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I don't, you know, really care if the Conservatives decide to go one direction or the other on this. Uh, you have a cat but, in this fight, actually. I, I don't. Um... But what I would say is that there's an assumption sometimes that leaders pick off where the other person pick up where the other person left off, and that it really isn't true. I mean, I was there at the beginning of a leadership in a in a party, and it was not pretty. Like there, there are some serious growing pains. Being a party leader is a very distinct job from being an MP or being whatever. Like it's it's very different, and you're you're very soon. You're running a very different kind of office. You're running a very different kind of organization. You have different questions you have to deal with that maybe you you were as an MP or as whatever. It's It really is quite a job, and it, the only way to learn it is doing it. And you have to find the right people, and maybe the people who got you to the leadership aren't the right people to steer you through the job itself, and you have to sort of retool your staff. But often you're not going to know that, and you're going to want to keep your people around because they're the ones that got you there. So... I think the assumption that you can you can etch, the Conservative Party can etch a sketch to a different leader uh, and just sort of keep going right where they were going is very wrong. Like it, it really is. It, first of all, it, it's just you you build up rancor among you know bruised feelings, etc. In a leadership race, they cost a lot of money. They take up a lot of money that would otherwise be going to the central party to build towards the next campaign. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time and money getting your leader known to the general public. As we're saying, you know, Aaron O'Toole, I think a big thing hampering him this campaign was that he simply didn't have a lot of chances to present himself to Canadians over the last year because this was a pandemic election where the prime minister was on TV every day with his solid snake beard. Um, and it was just very hard for opposition parties to break through. Um, so, look, take it for what it's worth. I, I think going for a leadership race right now in another minority situation when we could be back into an election sooner rather than later strikes me as being a considerable error and i would not recommend it for for any party except for maybe one so uh, so, so that's my cup of tea a, a few thoughts uh election sooner than later the the same rules apply um to the next election that applied to this election um which is unless you know the outstanding ballots go a very different way it will require all of the parties to vote non-confidence yeah. um, in order to trigger the next election, or it requires the government um, to take a walk down to the yes. to the GG, um, who now is uh, 50% less frightening, um, yes. at least. So ultimately, it'll be a question of probably the liberals throwing their hat into the ring again and again, shooting for a majority. Um, so that's one thing. Um, you know, it, it gives them... Uh, a lot of power in, in order to determine election timing. When we talk about conservative leadership, there's really two candidates on people's minds. Um, Leslin Lewis, um, who I'd say is a lot more uh, like Cheryl Gallant than a lot of people seem to suspect. Um, and Pierre Polyev. Uh, I think given a race of even Aaron O'Toole, Pierre Polyev, and Leslin Lewis, Pierre wins it. Um, I, I think... Yep he has enough of sort of an independent power base. I really, really struggle to see the world in which Pierre Polyev beats Aaron O'Toole. 
but I do see a huge opportunity cost for trying to pursue that option instead of trying to build up uh, the leader that's already in place. Folks within I the party... I am consistent in thinking that... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm consistent in thinking that Pierre will win any leadership race he sets foot into. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think he has uh, a big enough... When you said Aaron O'Toole, did you mean Justin Trudeau, by the way? For what? For what you said, you don't think that Pierre Polyev would beat Aaron O'Toole? Oh, sorry. Or yeah, did you mean Justin Trudeau. Trudeau. In, yeah, okay. In a, that's in why general. I was a bit confused. I was like, yes, okay. Gotcha. The important clarification. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what you're left with is saying, do we go with Pierre... Um, on the idea that he can uh, somehow appeal to 40% of Canadians? Or do we go with uh, continuing to build Aaron? And I, I tend to find myself in that camp. Um, you know, the, the central tension here is sort of the, the no true Scotsman fallacy, um, where conservatives you know especially at the party level i you know it's probably less true at the grassroots um really tend to believe and you'll hear this trotted out time and time again is the expression that if we peg to the center um in the way that some perceive Aaron O'Toole to have done um folks will vote liberal if they want to elect liberals um that folks don't vote for conservative parties that um, weaken on conservative issues, which I've never fully bought. I, you know, Nova Scotia being a, a very recent example of the contrary. Um, Aaron O'Toole's, you know, the platform certainly changed positions on some things. Uh, I think largely um, for the better in most instances. The number one thing I think that maybe irritated some people was on spending, um, that the spending was greater than the liberals, if nothing else. Um, you know, Quebec issues. that's, that's quite possible. What the platform was around Quebec was basically give them absolutely everything that, uh, Legault asked for. Uh, so these, these are things though, that can all be tuned in another run. Um, if this is where the party's at, but I don't think fundamentally the conservatives lost because they were, uh, spending too much money. I, I don't think that's where the, the sentiment of the Canadian population was. And I think had they played defense a little better, you know, and done offense, I think the absence of obs, uh, of offense in this campaign was really... The Prime Minister didn't really seem to be wedged on anything. He was always doing the wedging. Yeah, and to some extent, I think that was really hard to overcome because it's just like the frame of this election was the pandemic. That's sort of what they went into it with. Um, and it was very hard to get out of that box. And of course, they came out with all sorts of other little wedges on, you but, know, But the liberals managed to make it a bit, stuff. managed to make yep. guns almost as big yep. a question as the pandemic. Um, yeah, no, and I which agree was that the liberals were really, really effective. Incredibly successful wedge. Um, the fact that they managed to make this election about guns is actually kind of insane um that the liberals managed to pivot off of a position that uh, a lot of pro-gun control people think is really milk toast and weak to then say ah we are the strongest people on this uh yes. i don't understand like the prime minister is not in the good books of the ecole polytechnique um folks 
for having two week of positions on gun troll gun control yes the fact that they managed to make it the successful wedge i thought was pretty astonishing the the liberals did this in a few places where i think a a stronger ndp might have capitalized um by saying but you guys don't have a good position on this either yeah but etienne here's the problem with the ndp is that half the caucus is rural and northern and actually the absolute fucking last thing in the world they want to talk about is guns during a federal election you know that is fair (laughs) so in that sense a very well chosen wedge because it leaves the ndp completely out of the picture takes it aim at the conservatives uh and and it riddles them full of needler needles uh with their now legal needlers um so i mean i guess we can leave it there for now on the conservatives um like there there's just so many elements to this we will see if the usual folks um, the same folks in 2019 start agitating. Um, there is the option for Pierre Polyev to put up his hand and say, I 100% support the leader uh, and to really try and take the wind out of its sails. Um, it, you know, sometimes that's done sort of pro forma and not really meant. Um, but if it were done in a substantive way, otherwise, I mean, we'll see. I mean, he should at least do it pro forma. A default, uh, the default in the conservative constitution, which I haven't refreshed myself in a while, um, is to have a leadership review following the loss of a election. Um, a vote on a leadership review. Correct. Yes. Correct. Perhaps that. Yes. Um, as well as we we won't get into it here but there's also the chong reform act stuff um that everyone always thinks something cool is going to come out of and nothing uh nothing ever results of it so indeed um so that's conservative world yes ndp world tell me about Jugmeat. so i think there is no way around uh the fact that they had a bad night uh they went I went to bed, they were up about five, six seats, which is like certainly south of where I think ideally people would have wanted to be. And then I woke up and they were uh, up one. Uh, there was still the possibility of like Davenport shaking out a different direction. Um, but that's, I think, probably the only glimmer of hope remaining. Maybe uh, Vancouver Granville. So what's, what's the exact uh, number right now? You have it up there? The exact number of seats that they've won? Yeah. Like, w- they're leading or elected in 25. And the block? Which is up block 34, okay, so it's I not, believe, up two from last time. So their, their rank is secured as below the block. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not close. Be- yes. Because was there a substantial potential payoff for the NDP in terms of parliamentary resources and things like that if they had got third-party status instead of... There's some, there's some, it's not huge. It's really like a, when you're not official opposition, it's more of like chunks of MPs thing. It's not so much like whether you're third or fourth party that matters a whole ton. I think there's like office space assigned to speaking uh, orders, parties, but that, that's it. Yes. And that does matter. Certainly like uh, the, the purport, like you, going earlier in question period is better than going later and having more double blocks is better, but that's a function usually of just the number of seats you have. Um, so at any rate, yeah, no, it was definitely not a good night, and certainly the the classic NDP two two points bef- below the polls uh, of just having you know whether it's not being able to pull together on E Day and key writings, whether it's whatever, like it just never seems to gel right where the polling was, uh, and it's certainly a twenty percent of the popular vote result would have been pretty good, and probably wouldn't be good for another couple of seats. 
losing Ruth Ellen Brousseau's comeback run in uh, Betsy Messinger definitely hurts. And uh, I think we can thank Shachi Curl for that one uh, <laughs> by galvanizing a bunch of block voters. So uh, thank you. Big one. Um, look, I think it's uh, like I don't like I, I just talked about why turfing a leader is a bad idea. And I, I do think that. Uh, I think, you know, you don't get to be the most popular leader in the country and, you know, a a nationally recognized leader at this point by accident. It takes a lot of time and money. Uh, So I certainly don't think that that work should be thrown away and and gambled in the leadership race. Uh, I do not think that's the right move right now. Um, But yeah, like I think that there needs to be a real stock take about what's going on here. And certainly like look big picture. And I've kind of been like had this bottled up for a long time. Uh, is that like the NDP kind of needs to figure out what it wants to do. Because, I mean, realistically, the path to government, which is ostensibly what we're here for, is that you have to win basically all of Quebec. You have to really sweep in urban areas. You have to at least not embarrass yourself in the GTA. And that all of that done, you're at like 130, 40 seats, give or take. Like, you're not even winning a majority off of that. Um so and to do that the liberal party needs to collapse uh so in a sense to me it's it's hard to sort of make the case for like what's the plan here and like what's the plan if you win um and i think there there's a lack of vision and i think this kind of showed itself during the election of like you ask jagmeet or whomever about you know whether we should tax the rich and have more social programs that redistribute to the poor they're all for it, and that's great. I think those are two very important things to do. If you ask them, what's the key to Canada being a competitive economy in the future? Which, like, I mean, you can you can scoff at the importance of that, but like, if you are you know a social democrat or socialist, you and you want to pursue social democratic or socialist policies, you need to have an economy that is working. <laughs> like, you need to be providing growth so that people don't just turf you uh, because they don't want to make ideologically motivated sacrifices. Um, and I think that that is pretty clear. So I think, and like you look at the social democratic countries in, in Northern Europe, and I think they, they have very strong growth oriented economies um, in sort of similar situations as ours and that they're small open economies. Some of them have large resource sectors, etc. I don't know, maybe it would be worth thinking through more what that looks like. Uh, and maybe that's not the your door your pitch at the door, but like I do think you'd need to have thought about it. I think it is important to have a vision of, of economic growth and to at least have some answers on the big questions. And I think people looked at Jack Meat and they thought this guy seems really nice. He's making a decent case for why there should be an NDP to keep the liberals honest and you know keep them doing more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. I don't think he made any kind of case for why he should be prime minister or why you should trust the Democrats with government. Uh, and I think the NDP has a lot of work to do to get to a place where they can make that case well. Uh, and that, that may be hard for a lot of people I, I know and like to hear, but uh, I think that that is the case. Also, I think specifically uh, there needs to be a figuring out of what the fuck is going on in Toronto because whatever, I mean, this was a big part of Jigmeet's pitch was that he was going to be big in Toronto, big in the UTA. So far, it's been two elections under him that they've been locked out of the GTA entirely. Um, worse than when Jack Layton was leader, uh, it should be said. So, like, there needs to be some thinking about what's going on here. Like, losing Davenport by 500 votes, like, eight elections in a row is not an option. Um, and I don't know what the... I Like, I'm not an organizer. Like, this is not my, my field. 
but it does seem like there needs to be some thought about how things can be done differently there in the future because it does seem to be not going well um yeah that's sort of my take on what's going on with the ndp so my well i i just note the contrast or not the contrast but the similarity with the o'toole question that you know the gta has managed to be although it is not provincially has managed to be fortress liberal um to a large extent and the opposition parties have put in two leaders um who promised to bring home seats in the gta and have been unable to do so and that is a big uh a big reason for where why the election results are where they are today um my only two cents that i would add and i guess uh this is largely useless to anyone unless jack mead is listening which i suspect he's not um is just i think the number one thing he could do is just come across as a little bit more serious a little bit more wonky have better more detailed uh answers that sort of hint that he knows what the policies are beyond the high level concepts and principles Yes, and I think that the like the the problem there is that like as a party, the NDP does not spend a lot of time thinking about questions that are not, you know, uh, creating new social programs or new taxes, and I think that's a real weakness. Yeah, I feel like he's great on a Twitch stream saying tax the rich, tax the rich, tax the rich, but if anyone said like, you know, if anyone ever sat down with him and said like, okay, you're in charge of CRA, what are you doing tomorrow? It would be, well, I would. I would I would tax the rich like what what about what about the what, what all would that entail just, yes I would send the tax man little John or whoever the guy from Robin Hood would be um, and I I would send them and they would tax them and that's how it's delivered and you know everyone's sort of looking around being like he, he doesn't know how CRA works he has no idea how any of this works yeah so that's it's a big problem and like look i i've said many times like there's the ndp is an organization that spends most of its resources projecting the image that it is as well staffed and resourced as the the main parties that have 10 times their resources and i think it does a remarkably good job at that but like there does need to be some of this stuff happening under the hood and i think uh, there there's been definitely and like the thing is here and this is kind of my my bigger pet peeve is that the NDP as a political party runs itself like every other political party and like that's all well and good you know it's it it's easy to fall into that organizational mode I happen to think that that's like I said like where's the road to a government doing exactly what everyone else is doing with a party that is already hegemonic among left of center voters that you're just waiting for it to collapse like it's unclear to me like what the long-term plan is there like I think you do need to turn it into something Every party sort of treats its members as piggy banks and, um, you know, the door knockers come election time, uh, you know, data, etc. But there's not a lot of member actual engagement that happens. Um, And certainly, you know, the policy book that people vote for at conventions is immediately thrown in the trash can in favor of whatever the leader's office cooks up in terms of a platform. that may well work for the conservatives and liberals. I do think the NDP, given its lack of parliamentary resources, kind of has to leverage its extra parliamentary resources a little more, and that means the membership. Um, you have a lot of really committed and smart people in the membership. You also have some loons. That's true of every party. Um, but like, there's a sort of a negative feedback loop where the structures that are in place in the party produce garbage results, like a convention floor where you cannot possibly really have a meaningful discussion about any kind of policy. 
So people look at the results of that and say, well, that's garbage. Why would we want to trust members with more? And I think there it's like you, you sort of need to figure out structures that can actually bridge the gap a little better. And the thing is, is if you treat people like children, they will act like children. And that's the reality of how every political party treats its members. You expect nothing from them and you get nothing from them in terms of actual thoughtful engagement uh, in a lot of cases. So I think there needs to be a realization that if you want to win over the long term, you need to win, build more of a movement, and you can't really build more of a movement without being a two-way street. And I think that you need to start building that two-way street instead of it being exactly the same operation that's happening in other parties. Yeah, I think there's a longer... And once again, I, I will probably uh, not have made a lot of friends saying that. <laughs> I think there's a longer conversation in there to be had uh, talking about the policy development processes within parties, be it conservative, NDP, or liberal. Um, yeah. You know just how shallow they are um they are designed to bring in the maximal number of people to create a document that is swiftly discarded and forgotten um so who this serves it's sort of just a member service exercise rather than meaningfully tie into um the election apparatus of political parties um and often undermines the the election apparatus of political parties as as with the uh climate change vote of the yeah i can think of several examples of uh you know parties are often trying to fend off unpopular ideas from coming through these processes as opposed yes. to sort of a a more participatory democracy um yeah. approach yeah and like people People point out that like the leader is the brand and that this is a problem and like I think the leader is the brand and I think that that's it's very hard to avoid to be honest like it's um, just because Canadians have a limited attention span for politics they're going to see your leader they're going to see maybe one or two other people in your party you want to make those people have a strong brand and have them stick and I totally understand that uh, and I see the imperative but like I think uh, I, I just once again it trying to replicate the model of the other two parties and hoping that the more formidable of them collapses of its own accord does not really strike me as a strategy. It is a hope. Yeah, I, I think that's so. right. I think the realistic vision for the NDP is to play Kingmaker um, for, yes. you know, Kingmaker works better when you don't have uh, the block around to also be Kingmaking and, you know, which leaves yeah. the liberals in the position of going to the uh, creating a race to the bottom between the two opposition parties that they tend to play ball with. Um, and also having a third option if they if they choose to avail themselves of it. Um, that is certainly perhaps the worst case scenario outside of a majority government for um, for the NDP. Um, anything else you wanted to add on the NDP or shall we move very quickly on to Anime Paul? Uh, no, I think that's good. I just think uh, like I think. A lot of good people there, a lot of good ideas, but it's just they got to broaden and deepen and figure out exactly where the, the problems are because it's uh, we're, we're banging our head against the wall here and we're not really getting very different results. Speaking of banging one's head against the wall, um, <laughs> how did Anime Paul do in Toronto Centre? Very badly. 8% of the vote last I checked. So, uh, boy. Yes. She actually... I, let, me, let me check this. I think she may have done better in 2019 but i'm gonna just make sure okay that. you so you, you check the at... facts i'll i'll okay. talk to phil we the dead the air we love the facts here folks <laughs> um you know first impression was catastrophic result uh the greens managed to slip another candidate into 
a riding where the liberal MP had been removed um, for sexual harassment allegations or something to that effect. Um, Elizabeth May, one in Saanich Gulf Islands, uh, Saanich Gulf Island, rather, the, uh, as every Green will tell you, not a safe seat that she perennially wins by a large margin that has every hallmark of being a safe Green seat. Um, <laughs> but she is the only one to win there, so it's not a safe seat, even though her margins are very, very robust. Oh, Boy, do I have news for you. What's that? So Annie Paul did not do worse than in 2019. What did she, how'd she do in 2019? She did better. She did slightly better than in 2019. Do you want to know how many votes she gained from 2019 to 2021? Uh, five. You're off by, in the grand scheme of things, not very much. The number is 69. (laughs) She... All of that for 69 votes. That is decidedly not nice. Is that a lower share of the votes, though? It is a very, very slightly higher share. Last time around in, in 2019, she got 7.07% of the vote, and this time around, she got 9. Okay. Well, yeah, because voting was a little lower this year. Um, yes. Yeah, just absolutely brutal result. Um, To take it to its most pragmatic level, I can only imagine that the Green Party is essentially broke. Um, We'll lay off virtually everyone who's not strictly necessary. And, you know, doing the Green Party leader as a full-time job, if your salary is not being paid by the Parliament of Canada, i.e. you've become an MP, um is really hard for small parties to justify paying a even $100,000 salary. Um, <laughs> at one point, Jagmeet, um, before he got into the House of Commons, was going to take the $160,000 or $170,000 salary of an MP. And uh, let me tell you, that got walked walk back pretty quickly as the NDP um, were indebted. And, you know, maybe that played a part in his decision to actually get in the House of Commons. Um, Anime you know, has no options here uh, unless she forces a by-election in one of the two ridings, but that would not be doing uh, politics differently, so I suspect that will not be the case. (laughs) Um, If I were her, if I were her, I mean, I would say, I I would be like all guns on Elizabeth May right now. Uh, Like, resign, give me your seat. And if she doesn't do that, she's gonna, she's leaving. Like, I think those are the two options. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't pick on the new guy. Um, Your first ever seat in Ontario. Not only can you not pick... That you won largely through... Yeah, well, that's the thing, is unless (laughs) leader's courtesy is extended to her, which it may well be um, by at least the Liberals, um, her odds of winning that riding in a by-election without leader's courtesy would be pretty low. Um, yes. So it's Sandwich Gulf Islands or nothing if she's going to remain around. Um, I mean, I don't know her. Um, maybe she is just really, really committed to this and hangs out for two years, virtually unpaid, um, on the peripheries of the House of Commons. But boy, would that be a thankless thing to do. I mean, to be honest, looking at her resume, like, my, my thought is kind of like, you got to have better things to be doing with your time. That's exactly... And, and, <laughs> it's kinda, and it's your party like tried to knife you and is going to continue yeah, coming like, after you. Just leave these guys, uh, man. Like, this is a... 
I yeah, I can think of about fifty things I would rather be doing in her position, and most of them involve just playing video games uh, full time instead of trying to lead a party um, that has been incredibly hostile to you. Uh, so yeah. some poor decisions were made there. I mean, in the lead up to this whole thing, I had always said um, I have no idea what she thinks she's doing running in Toronto Center because uh, she isn't going to win it. Uh, no. So what do you do? Do you just continue to uh, bang your head against the wall and run in Toronto Center and Toronto Center and Toronto Center until you're, you know, you exhaust your own personal resources? And uh, yes, it's worth saying too. Sandwich Gulf Islands was not easy territory for Elizabeth May to begin with. Uh, it was a conservative cabinet minister that was there, and she won that seat fair and square. And like, I think since that has done a lot of work building up a machine there. But like, it, yeah, like it's it's not easy to do. The minimum could have been going somewhere else on the island, where you know Manley's riding or another one that has sort of these green, uh, green adjacent. Um, and sort of hoping for some sort of contagion effect. Um, yes. Might, might I suggest Cowich and Malahat Langford as a very good one to indeed. win. Indeed. Um, but... Or Sandwich Sioux. Yeah. Those are both writings where they came either second or third by a reasonably close margin. Uh, Victoria, I think at this point, eh, they came pretty close last time. So I don't know. Like, you got better options. Any, any of the Vancouver Island spots would be dramatically better. Um, Not North Island Powell River, but yes, any of the southern Vancouver. Then, then Toronto Center, yes. I'm, I'm going to stand by that. Yes. Um, sure, yeah, fair enough. So here we are. Uh, we will see what's ahead. If I were her, I would have resigned immediately. Um, but clearly, um, she, she is not me and I am not her, so I can't make those decisions. Yes. And this brings us to uh, the Dan Flash's aficionado of Canadian politics, uh, Maxime Bernier and his very confusing shirts. Yeah, we're just going to ignore the, the block. Um, aside from having... Yeah, well, I mean, oh, sure. Yeah, let's deal with the block for a second. Is Yves-François Blanchet did exactly what he's good at, which is being good at TV debates. Uh, they had a very they had the best 30 seconds of anybody in the election campaign when Chad G. Curl uh, asked a very mean and nasty question about Quebec. Um <laughs> And that was enough to get him over the line in all sorts of places where I think otherwise they wouldn't have. And, you know, I truly, like, uh, I quite honestly, like, I think he is the most personally unpleasant of any of the party leaders, except for maybe Vernier. Um, and I, I wish him nothing but, you know, mild annoyance. I, I'm not a big fan Although he also did have the best 30 seconds of election night in which he asked, uh, I interrupted my barbecue for <laughs> I, this. Which, which you know, I was very sympathetic to as, as a grilling issues voter. Uh, so. Uh, so let's put aside the block and uh, go on to the PPC. the PPC. I mean... Well, back to the PPC. You know, this election... Uh, per, so two ways to read it. One, it was the perfect confluence of events with vaccine passports um, to galvanize the... Uh, vaccine hesitant Canadians to flock to the PPC in groves. And it must be said, a week green party. Uh, yes. <laughs> and virtually triple their turnout. Um, it will be interesting to see whether or not they can hang on to those votes and those voters. The PPC is not a party known for having particularly robust infrastructure. Um, you know, it's actually, its infrastructure has largely been in shambles over the years. It is a party that is led by a single individual who uses it basically to fund his own personal salary. 
Um, you know, Max takes a nice cut and keeps the donations rolling and no one challenges his leadership. Um, so everyone's happy and he gets to jet set around and play minor celebrity. Um, we'll see if that's the case. Uh, if there's an election in say two to three years and this COVID thing is behind us and vaccine passports are a, uh, you know, are a non-issue at that point. Yeah, I think it's hard to imagine a mix of issues better suited for their kind of catch-all, pissed-off base. And it's worth saying that, you know, people, and yeah, we sort of touched on this on Twitter, but if you don't follow us on Twitter, like, there was a lot of punditry around, like, oh, well, if you add the People's Party vote to the Conservative vote, there's however many writings that would have gone Conservative. And, like, sure, okay. But I think it's, especially in the People's Party's case, it is a total fool's errand to try and draw a linear relationship to the Conservative Party uh, in terms of overlapping votes. Like, I, th- I really do think they pulled a lot from the Greens, and I think their biggest source of growth is probably just people who did not vote in the past. Um, yeah. Like, every, everyone you know who is really into MLMs gave them at least a very, very <laughs> strong consideration. I'm, I'm, like, not joking, right? Because it's, like, that's the kind of mindset that sort of, like, leads you to that. Um, but, yeah, and I think the other thing, too, is, like, look, like, they got, they, they lapped the Greens by a factor of two, like, it, they did quite well compared to last time, despite not appearing in the debates, despite whatever. I do think the perfect confluence of events thing is is true. Uh, I do think also the Conservative Party tacking a bit more to the center compared to Sheer probably helped them out in Alberta and other places like that where they were kind of an easy protest vote against, you know, for people mad that uh, Aaron O'Toole is being too nice to Quebec, etc. Fine, I, I think that's probably true. Um, I do think, though, like, this was a bit of a national stress test, and I think people didn't do too well in terms of, like, how do you cover this? Like, I I saw people getting, like, really mad on election night that they interviewed a PPC guy, and it's like, they tripled their vote. Like, they got, like, I'm sorry, but the Green Party was getting infinitely more coverage, like, before they were getting that much of the vote. And like, I do I think they're do I think their ideas are toxic and bad? Yes, I do. Nor do I think that like sunlight is the best disinfectant, and you have to like, um, you know, like, just own them with facts and logic because I don't think you're going to do that. But I do think you, if you're a journalist or a news outlet, like I do kind of think you have to owe it. You owe it to people to at least inform them about what's going on. Like I don't think you owe these people a megaphone. I don't think you also should make the choice to just pretend they don't exist. I think that that's and also I mean it should be said like you're not going to own people with facts and logic in terms of like the, the crystals guy who is also racist uh, who is like the sort of key de- supporter of the people's party as, as a demographic um, like you're not going to convince him but like people are going to start seeing the him and you know the, the testicles breathing guy and whomever <laughs> and they're but the, like the, my point in this is that like the more you pretend it's not a thing, the harder you convince people with this kind of conspiratorial, paranoid mindset to go that direction. Sure, I, I, I think, think like I, I think it's it's inciting effect, and I think it like I, I think there yeah. is. A... I just think like you need to think about this a bit more strategically than like, oh my god, don't talk to them. Yeah, I, you know, I think the same could be said of. What first of all, it's a very fine line, and you know the amplification of their. Uh, message is largely over social media and is not through conventional media. Yes. Um, yes. So I, I don't think we really know enough about the impact of the CBC covering one dude as opposed to the, the well, 50,000 yeah, people. The, the Waluigi guy. I, I'm sure Waluigi did not convert like 
hundreds of thousands of people's party voters on the spot like which is sometimes happen. how we treat these things um yes and just just for the interest of time i won't go into the the argument uh one way or the other about uh the impact of having a, a ppc member in uh parliament and whether or not how detrimental that would be for parliament to have a ppc mp although i would emphasize we have had <laughs> I mean, a ppc we, we member did. in parliament yeah. <laughs> and uh let me tell you he was not a great uh he was mostly not yeah, there he was largely absent uh hung out beside elizabeth may and uh got heckled God, that must have been once fun. a month when he spoke so i i don't think it yes. is quite the catastrophic event um that people uh, would like to think Man, it is, as we like... have, you know, an independent who has uh, been uh, charged and the charges dropped of sexual assault going to Parliament, and, uh, you know, that's in a similar magnitude of problematic. Um, I, it's, yeah, like, all of the PPC is just, like, I think people have perhaps overlearned the lesson of... Um, which was absurd it must be said of cnn running the empty trump podium for like a half hour or whatever and like uh, look like big mistakes were made there i think you can also overlearn that then yeah no no one yeah. was running All that to say, press conferences on daytime television uh for no. 45 minutes at a time and it should also be said that i think like a key thing here is people are like oh the ppc are racist and like i yes like there are people who are like big time racists in the ppc there are also people like i said who are just like the person you went to high school with that's really into mlm now and like i i think it's just a i think the the, the biggest mistake you can say about the ppc is that it's any one thing because uh, <laughs> it really really isn't uh it is just a huge grab bag of everyone who is is the a pissed canadian of various sorts so yeah let's leave them there and jump to our new segment uh very quickly which is dunking on bad takes about what this election actually was about ah yes the the post-election cope i i think um, we are both of the view that um uh given the seat count and the absolute um you know the absolutely minimal change in the numbers of seats and uh more importantly the dynamics of parliament and the outcomes resulting from the election um that this election uh was largely um unnecessary uh, albeit a shot at the liberals to grab power uh they bet the house and they ended up with status quo uh, so i guess good for them but there are lots of people who would try and convince you that this is, in fact, a, a glorious and wonderful outcome. Um, and I think that's who we're here to uh, to poke fun at, let's say. So chief among them, I think, is, of course, our favorite guy and yours, uh, Gerald Butts, um, now an adjunct puppet person at uh, Eurasia Group. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't watched their puppet shows don't but know that elaborate puppet shows exist uh yes it's honestly it just goes to show well a lot of things really <laughs> but anyway we'll i can talk about the eurasia group in another day um yeah so what he said it, it, it people were sort of mad again that the liberals had had lost you know the popular vote but won the most seats by you know more than the proportion would suggest um what he says is 
What you see here is a long-term optimization trend or a response to political market forces. If elections were a popular vote contest, this graph would be inverted. Incentives work. We count seats, not votes, so smart campaigns focus on delivering them. He followed that up with, vote efficiency isn't accidental. All three Trudeau-Liberal campaigns are among the most efficient in Canadian history. The unsung team of super geniuses, and here I will put a heavy sigh, put together and led by Tom Pitfield at Data Sciences, deserves a lot more credit than they've ever received. Uh, first of all, I'll preface this by saying I don't actually think he's wrong. Uh, I do think that like the more process-oriented maximalist you become about the... There's a certain spirit of the game here that you kind of have to play, and I think over time, if you you look at only maximizing um, and sort of optimizing, like, yes, that is the sort of, like, as he puts it, political market force correct thing to do. I also think it's genuinely, like, A, it makes you worse at governing. B, is probably just corrosive to the spirit of what a democratic public and a democratic election is supposed to be over the long run. Uh, and I don't really see it ending anywhere good. Uh, and C, it's just, like, as usual with Jerry, so you just can't, can't help but be kind of an asshole about it. Uh, so my thought on this was, uh, as soon as conservatives gain power, they should 100% hit the EMP and absolutely nuke um, the ability of political campaigns to do the creepy big database stuff that I'm sure is going on behind the scenes there um, that they once yeah, that they once that, used though. to openly brag about but now they have behind sort of a veil of data science as things are going on um, it used to be yes. the yeah we're neck and neck with Cambridge Analytica and now it's uh, uh, we have a team of super geniuses that is delivering the election results that we want and we will, will not tell you how that's happening um, no. and, and, and uh, I don't think the conservatives will be nuking the political databases anytime yeah. soon again if I say it enough, it's gonna it's gonna become a thing. I've I've laid out the case for that before. Uh, I will refrain from doing it again, uh, but I will insist that it is a great idea and more people should take it up. Um, I I do agree we that we absolutely should do not need an arms race. Back to clipboards, of folks. Creepy databases on voters um, to do things like this. We need campaign volunteers with grit and uh, uh, clipboards and nothing more than that. And it would be a very refreshing yes. change. Um, yes. here's, here's a good one, um, courtesy of another uh, LPC staffer. Uh, for anyone who says election 44 didn't matter, six of 63 MPs, uh, so <laughs> under 10% uh, by my math, who voted to keep conversion therapy legal uh, were defeated. Were defeated. Uh, and replaced. And replaced and by candidates. Who support. LGBTQ2 plus rights. And then there's uh, the names of those six candidates. Um, you know, election, $650 million elections, although I won't dwell on the money spent, uh, are fundamentally not about removing uh, six uh, individual MPs based on their uh, views and not changing any of the dynamics of parliament. Um, it is completely inconsequential um, that six, I, I bet you if you looked at the math, there are new MPs who would support um, uh, the votes of these MPs in turn. So the, the math, first of all, is weak. The dollar value is weak. The percentage of success rate uh, at under 10% is weak. Um, uh, that to me is wrongly an absolutely like, horrible point. If yeah. that was your it's, goal, it's what happened to the other 
um, 57 <laughs> MPs that you were helping to turf. Like, your success rate here isn't great. Maybe no, data science should have been up to that one. Yes. I, I, to me, what's really funny about this is the absolute, like, West Wing lib brain about it, where it's like, wow, we made... We came 10% of our way to doing this thing that, like, we hadn't really set out as a goal in the first place. But now that we've done it, uh, that's that's victory, folks. And doesn't it smell Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, it's sort of the most grasping at straws if these are sort of your big uh, your big clapbacks of, like, elections matter. We managed to seat, unseat yeah. 7% of people we don't like. What? Yes, who whose votes were ultimately inconsequential anyway because the bill passed at that yes, stage that of course could not be forgotten yes you want to talk about no. uh, uh some pulled from reddit some of the folks on the end oh yeah these make me these make me a little sad to be honest uh but like woof anyway i'll go right into it uh one guy asks the subreddit what happened Jagmeet Singh seemed to campaign more than the other parties and had a big presence on social media such as instagram and tiktok for campaigning but it doesn't seem to have generated results and then in the text of the post, I was truly expecting to see an orange wave across the country and the NDP only managed to capture like two new seats, question mark. Actually, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> not even that much, it turns out. Is the demographic he was campaigning towards still not voting? Is there just less quantity of them to make a difference compared to older demographic voters? And to me, that was just like, oof. Ooh, I felt bad seeing that. That was, uh... Why ouch. did the TikTok views not <laughs> correlate to votes? Uh, I mean, this yeah. is kind of like linked into the, the Bernie Sanders effect that folks kept promising um, that, you know, the social media savvy campaigns and the online uh, Twitter likes and retweets would one day translate into votes. And uh, boy, is there a horrible track record in doing those things. Um, it, it does kind of make one wonder why some of these left wing campaigns um, are unsuccessful at doing these things well sort of the ppc online folks are able to use you know ostensibly the same tools not tiktok but largely facebook um, and deliver sort of more real world results in a tangible way um, maybe because one one or demographic votes more, and the more... other demographic is unable to vote <laughs> um, but yeah i mean i think it's more more results that are directly attributable sure. to that i think is the yeah but, like, I, I think at one point I saw that um, Avi Luce's campaign manager was tweeting during the campaign, and I was like, okay, so he's going to lose then. It's like, if, you're, if your campaign manager is tweeting during an election, like, you're not going to Yeah. Um. <laughs> the, the absolute disparity between Twitter and the real world, this is actually something I struggle with for top liberals as well. I, I think there is sort of a, a high-level air war logic that it's largely about influencing uh, journalists. Journalists, uh, that yeah. journalists take their signals so strongly from Twitter. Um, they'll take, you know, question ideas. They'll be inspired by things on Twitter. Um, and so that yeah. that's it, sort of actually the long game. But otherwise, like, yes. senior LPC staffers tweeting their way through the election and making, like, elaborate posts with emojis and things like that. You just kind of look at that and be like, isn't there something better you could be doing? I mean, I just think leave it to the comms people is my point of view on this. And, like, I do agree that, like, that absolutely journalists are Twitter-brained and, like, you need to be there so that they can... Your brain worms can get into their brain worms. And, like, absolutely, that's true. But, like, yeah, you keep it to the people who absolutely have to be there. Uh, I, I remember in the last campaign, uh, like, in 2019, I just turned it off for, like, 
however long that campaign was and like if i needed to see something someone brought it to my attention but otherwise i was just not on it because i was too busy working <laughs> and did not have time to spend time on twitter seeing what people were saying about things um so yeah highly recommend that and uh if in rapid response or something obviously yes it needs to be on there um yeah all that to say yeah man like not good um people i don't know what it is about this i think once again there it's i mean this is the reddit demographic who are more convinced than anybody that what happens on the computer is real um but yeah that's it's not good folks you gotta you gotta get off the computer do you want to pick another that's just a good good life lesson another elections matter post from the uh from the doc yeah what do we got here um okay we got the reshuffle the deck of cards guy I don't know that that's terribly interesting. Um, we got mandate guy. You want to go to yeah, mandate, guy? mandate guy? Lots of pundits are. So okay. I responded to this on uh, on Twitter a little bit, but we can elaborate here. Uh, lots of pundits are suggesting that hashtag election forty four uh, didn't matter, but I beg to differ. Since twenty nineteen, the LPC introduced a significantly stronger climate plan. Uh, 2020, ratcheting up Canada's 2030 Paris targets to 40 to 45 percent, uh, and now want a mandate to implement these measures, and to go even further by implementing the climate action laid out in detail in its platform. And the two parties that hold the balance of power, the NDP and or the Bloc, are even more ambitious and will push for more. For our kids, our environment, and our economy, this is huge. Uh, let me start with saying that was the st- uh, on the second half of that that was the state of affairs before the election and on the first half of this you know the idea of a mandate at the heart of it is kind of bullshit um yeah more right-wing voters will disagree with me um because they really like the idea that governments are elected on a mandate and are held to that mandate and should do nothing beyond that mandate uh but Practically speaking, governments in Canada um, are not handcuffed to documents that they pen multiple <laughs> I mean, years before. Just take, yeah, um, take the, do the reductio ad absurdum here and imagine that the Trudeau government uh, implements this 2019 platform. It, yeah, instead of responding to COVID. To Sorry, folks, we got to do camping vouchers. We don't have time. We got to do, do the camping vouchers. We don't have time to do the rest of this. Like the idea of mandates are sort of a popular fiction um, that really exists virtually nowhere in our system except like as a fiction for what senators uh, can and cannot shoot down, uh, which is sort of the only continuity of that fiction in our uh, in our political system. Um, but even there, it's somewhat of a fiction. Um, so to take to take any election promise and like uh, the. F- uh, the guy here is like a, a climate um, uh, policy expert. And so he is honed in on a small chunk of the platform and saying this is a mandate to do exactly what needs to be done on the area I'm a specialist in. Um, to be fair, it is a pretty big area and they did spend a lot of time It certainly about. is. Um, but in practical terms, the actual election mandate side of this just absolutely doesn't matter they they are they committed to these things before the election in fact just shortly before um and we're in the same state of affairs afterwards the idea of a mandate is really kind of corrosive at the end of the day uh in many circumstances and it binds us to fictions about our political system 
but that is a very unpopular view um, as people like to believe that they and and don't get me wrong voters can still hold their political parties to account um, based on the implementation of their platforms and or any other criteria they possibly want to hold uh, the you know the government to account on um, but creating this fiction of a mandate is just completely unnecessary and it's in fact uh, unproductive if you care about climate um, because it prevents the government from ratcheting things up willy-nilly if it sees the need to uh, say ban thermal coal outside of the auspices of an election it says oh but they don't have a mandate to do that we can't do that I think you're I think you're over literalizing a little bit here uh, because of course they did do that like, right at the outset or no I suppose they, they announced it as a, as a pr promise but certainly like I don't know I, I see your point about this I, I don't think it's ever really stopped them like they did tighten up the environmental plan in December of 2020 quite a bit and I think not all of that was in the platform um, certainly on stuff where you're you have a overall goal in mind and you have a suite of policy options to get there like i don't necessarily think that you need to become overly attached to the, the various levers and you know enshrine those as as quote unquote a mandate i mean i think harper when he was first elected had a lot of success on running on a mandate to do a couple of things and interpreting it that way and i think that was a political success for him um but yeah i don't know i i, I do think in general like and we said this before platforms are dramatically overrated um and are often produced in an environment of deep ignorance about what the government's capacity is to do various things uh, in a reasonable time frame. So in that sense, I think like, I, I think there should just be less emphasis on platforms and more on like, here's my team, here's my vision, you know, here's me. Uh, do you think I can do this? And if so, vote for me. Like, I don't know. It's uh, over obsessing about like little bits. But the thing with the, the, the bits is intimately connected to what we are talking earlier about the data and the micro-targeting and all that stuff is that you are just giving stuff in little gift baskets for little pie slices of the electorate. Yeah, one hundred percent, and that's one of the reasons. Um, you got to you got back to clipboards. Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the reasons that we no longer have elections about you, you know five big issues. Um, you know the common sense revolution style of platform, um, and now it's five themes and two hundred and fifty smaller micro-targeted boutique things, um, because we can push. Yes the transit tax credit to voters who have liked trains and buses on their Facebook page. Um, yes. So, yeah. Very good. I th I would have a lot, I have a lot more to say about this, but in the interest of time, I will uh, elide those comments for, for a different day. I think that'll probably do it for us today. Um, unless you have anything to add. No, I think that is about it. We'll, we'll end it there, but I, I also have more thoughts just, just let the record reflect yes well we, we all have lots of thoughts they're just uh bubbling up out of our brains into the ether all the time and if we didn't have this podcast we would just be like rocking in the <laughs> corner just saying this out loud um in our respective uh homes so probably good that we do this um yeah that will do it for the boys in short pants episode 116 the 117th episode um book club is still on and, we have not uh, forgotten it no, we have not. In fact, we have a, a pile of books that have been added to Book Club, though you can't read them because they were sent to us by the publishers. Well, uh, one, one is available, but we'll, it's like, we'll you, but we'll it's like $70, uh, which is, uh, I realize, a, t uh, a hard ask and more of a, more of a poli-sci textbook than anything, but uh, we'll be yeah, in touch so the about that one. The other one is out in a month. 
the other one is out in a month and i think we'll actually do a more timely episode about that so um very good thanks everyone for listening and uh bye